I want to ask you to open up to the Gospel of Matthew this morning as we'll look briefly at our passage this morning, Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, we'll continue in through our study. If you're visiting this morning, we're just kind of walking through the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 15, verse 21 to 31, verses 1 to 20 of chapter 15 dealt with the understanding of, of what it means to truly worship the Lord with your heart, not just with your lips, right? And that, that true worship comes from the heart. It is not just focused on the tradition of man. And so, so Jesus dealt with and confronted the Pharisees for them honoring tradition and elevating tradition to the point that it led the people and led them to disobey the very clear commands of God. And so we talked about that in the first 20 uh, verses there, and so we pick up this morning in chapter, or verse 21, and we will look at this, this passage briefly this morning. Beginning in verse 21 in Matthew 15, we read this from the Word of God. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered her, O oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. And Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with him the lame and the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. I want to take this passage and just give you and kind of three key observations that I would say we need to take away from this, this narrative when we have this account of, of Christ and his interaction with the, with the Canaanite woman, and then he goes on and from there uh, speaks with the people and brings healing upon many people. We'll look at three different observations. The first of them will be the mission of God that we see here in this passage. The second, we'll look at the faith of the woman. And then finally, we'll see somewhat of what you might call a, a model of ministry from Christ. And so three simple observations this morning for us from the Gospel of Matthew. Let's first look at verse 21 to 22. The, what we'll see is the, the mission of God. We, we talked about that before in our study of Matthew, that, that we understand Matthew's writing primarily to a Jewish audience. And he, he writes and he's showing through his gospel that what the mission of God is beyond that of just the nation of Israel. It goes beyond to the ends of the world, ends of the earth, to all nations. But here we have an interesting interchange with Jesus and a Canaanite woman, right? 
He even, he even says something, if you were listening and you, 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 read, you heard the passage and then you heard what I just said, that, that his mission is to all people, right, to all nations. But, but Jesus says in this passage, what? He says, I've come only for the lost sheep of Israel, right? And so instantly you're going, wait a minute, what's going on here? Well, let's, let's look at it for a moment. This passage is the only time that Jesus leaves Jewish territory, so he, he leaves the Galilee area. He goes about 25 miles north to Tyre. And if he goes on to Sidon, that's another 25 miles north. And so this is a considerable journey for Jesus. It, some, some scholars have speculated it would perhaps be several months that he's gone. In, in Mark 7, verse 24, we, we find out, Mark tells the same account. He goes into some, some different details. And in his account, he tells us that Jesus actually goes there to kind of get away. He goes into a house, and his, his goal when he goes into that house is to hide. He's looking for some privacy. But he, he can't hide. He's found. He's particularly, he's found by this lady here in, in our account. And so what we see here right away is we, we see and we need to understand God's mission. You need to understand his mission to the Gentiles. We need to understand that Matthew is continuing to show and to write to his Jewish audience to help them to see and to understand what that mission is and how that mission unfolds. And what we see here is that mission is unfolding in perhaps a different way than we might expect it to in a different way than maybe the, the Jews might expect it to, although it is very consistent with the very mission of God throughout the Old Testament. The first thing I point out to you is the term that Matthew uses. Mark doesn't use the term here. How does he describe the woman? What is she? She's a Canaanite woman. Right now, now Mark describes her as being Syrophoenician. That's some of your, some of your uh, texts may even have that as a heading. I saw one Bible had that as a heading in Matthew, even though it doesn't say that in the text here. But in Mark, he describes her differently. Matthew, though, intentionally uses Canaanite. Why would he do this? Because he's writing, again, to a Jewish audience, primarily a Jewish audience. And so when the Jewish audience hear Canaanite woman, what do they think of? They think of when the people of God go into the promised land, and when they enter the promised land, what do they do? They drive out the Canaanites. The Canaanites are, are cast out, they're sent out. And so the Jewish mind, when they hear Canaanite, they think of those people that are driven out, these, these people that are idolatrous, pagan, ungodly people. And so Matthew writes, and he says, a Canaanite woman came to him. Not just a woman from Tyre, a Canaanite. And so the Jews' ears would kind of perk up. You'd perk up. Now, as we hear this, I want you just to briefly, I just want to remind you God's mission. We said that this is consistent. What Jesus tells them here is consistent with his mission throughout the Old Testament. You, you may have picked up, you may have even heard in Galatians, when I read Galatians uh, up to 10, I think it was verse 8 or 9, in chapter 3 of Galatians, Paul makes reference to Abraham and the promise spoken to Abraham that is applied to the Gentiles, that comes to fruition in the Gentiles. So what, what happens there is in Genesis 12, 3, when God calls Abraham to leave his land and to go to the, the promised land, he said, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. There's our blessing and curse theme, right? And in, all, in, or in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so right away, we start getting a sneak, a sneak peek of God's intention, right? That all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth would be blessed through his people that he would call out to himself and form. The reason 
later in Exodus, the reason that God raises up Pharaoh, we read in Exodus 9, 16, is this. He says, but for this reason, I've raised you up. He's talking to Pharaoh. This is the reason, Pharaoh, I raised you up. What is that reason? That my way may be known, or I'm sorry, um, to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So God looks at Pharaoh and says, listen, I raised you up for this person, or this purpose. The purpose for me raising you up in this moment to defy me and to stand opposed to me and enslave my people is so that my name would be proclaimed not just to the Jews, to all the earth, to all the earth. We get into the Psalms, in Psalm 67, a psalm that we, we look at often. The reason that the psalmist prays for God's blessing is what? That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. That's why we started today singing, may the peoples praise you. That's our desire and our longing, that the nations would praise the Lord. Then we jump on into Psalm 96, and in Psalm 96, we're to declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. In Psalm 96.10, we are to say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. We're to declare that not, again, not just to the people of God, but to the nations. Why? That they might praise Him. That they might glorify Him. They might exalt Him. This is just a few samplings. You can find other places in the scriptures, in the, in the prophets where, where God says, I am punishing you and I am doing a work and I'm going to show mercy to you. Why? That my name might be praised among the nations. You see that theme just consistently through the Old Testament. Now Matthew picks up on that. How does Matthew begin? Do you remember Matthew begins the coming of Christ. God reveals the coming of Christ to who? Who does he first revealing to? He reveals him to wise men in the east. They're not part of the Israelites. They're not Jews. He reveals him to the Magi, and the Magi come to see the incarnate king, the Savior born in a manger. Then we see the end, if we just bookend Matthew. We see the beginning, where you're starting to get hints of that. You see even, you can look in the genealogy, and you can see Matthew intentionally bringing out important points of genealogy. It doesn't always include the Jews. And we get to the end of Matthew, and what does he do in the end of Matthew? What do we leave on? Go, therefore, to all the nations. The Great Commission to all nations. Go to all, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we see this mission. So it begs the question, what in the world is going on in verse 24? (laughs) Why does he say this? Why does Jesus look at her in verse 24 and go, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? There's two things that we have to keep in mind. One is that God's plan has always been for his glory and his salvation to be known among all the nations. We just talked about that. We looked at that. It's always been his plan. It's been consistent throughout, and it's consistent up until Matthew, and it's consistent through and even in the end of Matthew, and it's consistent beyond all throughout the New Testament, right? So we know that. It's all over Scripture. That's his plan. So what does verse 24 mean? The second thing we have to remember is this, is that Jesus came first to the Jews so that the gospel might be taken to the Gentiles. He came first to the Jews so that it might be taken to the Gentiles. Now, think back, if you've been with us, in Matthew 10. 
In Matthew 10, you have what's known as the missions discourse. And in that, you have Jesus talking, about the, or talking to the disciples about missions and sending them out and explaining to them what it's going to look like to be on mission for him. He talks about persecution. He talks about sharing the gospel. He talks about advancing it. But when he sends them out in, in chapter 10, verse 5 and 6, he says this, The twelve Jesus sent out instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So even in that sending, Jesus says, at first, I want you to go to the people of Israel first. I want you to prioritize them and go there first, right? That's what we see as he's sending them out. This does not mean, this does not mean that Jesus does not show compassion and work in the lives of Gentiles at the time as you go through the Gospels. We've seen that in Matthew already. We saw, remember the centurion, right? You remember his work in the centurion's life and now the Canaanite woman's life? You see the work in both of them. By, and we'll look at in a few minutes, those two individuals are the only ones who are commended for great faith. They're commended for their faith. Their faith is exemplified. All right, so what I want you to do is I want you to hear God's word in Romans 15, the passage that we meditated on, we thought about, and we, had, we read before the sermon. Listen to what Paul says and explains in Romans 15. He says, for I tell you, this is verse 8, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Why? Why do you do that? Why do you become a servant to the circumcised? He's talking about the Jews. He became a servant to the Jews. Why? To show God's truthfulness. Okay, well, why would he do that? And Paul says, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. So Paul is explaining the process. He's explaining the big picture of what's going on. Jesus says, listen, I was sent just to the lost sheep of Israel. And Paul says, listen, he's agreeing, he's affirming this and teaching and showing God's great mission, right? He says that Jesus, what? He was sent first to the Jews. Why? To show God's truthfulness and to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. He's showing that God is true to his word. Why? So that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That's why he's doing this. That's why it worked in this way. The purposes of God shown to Jews first so Gentiles might worship him for his mercy. So here's, here's a question. Why would he do that? I want to ask you this. We... We most, I would say all of us, most all of us, I don't know, there may be someone who's a bit different on here, but most all of us in here would be considered Gentiles. We're not Jews. If we were told that God is faithful, that God's always true to his word, yet we open up scripture and God had not been faithful to those he called out as his people in the Old Testament and had not confirmed his promises to them, would we think God is faithful? No. No. What we have here is that God sends Christ, his very son, to Jews first to confirm the promises, to confirm his faithfulness, that the Gentiles would look and say, wow, 
He's faithful to his word. He is true to his word. And we magnify him and we glorify him for his great mercy. So here Jesus says, listen, I have come first to my people. Okay, first to my people. In verse 26 and 27, it ties into that. It's important for us to understand. He says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. He's, he's not speaking in a derogatory manner here. He actually uses a different word for dogs here in the Greek than one that's used derogatory. This is just a household pet here. What he's doing is he's speaking in a way to express and to show priority. And we all understand that. I don't go home today at lunch and look at, we have two dogs, Pedro and Rosie. I don't go to home and sit down at lunch and go, oh, the dogs are hungry. Let me give them what we just cooked. They're going to have lasagna today. Kids, you fend for yourself. No, they can whine all they want to, and I'm not doing that, right? We're going to go home, and we're going to sit down, and we're going to eat lasagna, and the dogs can whine, and after we get finished, then we'll feed them, right? It's a simple, simple prioritization, that my priority is my kids, right? It's how we operate. And Jesus is saying, my priority is first to come and to show myself faithful and true to my people, and then the gospel will go to the nations, so it's significant that we have Jesus saying these things through Matthew and we get to the end of Matthew and we have the Great Commission where he says, now go therefore make disciples of all nations, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's sending out, right? We understand the big picture. So we see the mission of God here. Second thing we see is in verse 22 to 28, we see the Canaanite woman's faith we see the Canaanite woman's faith. Now, I mentioned to you that the centurion in chapter 8, and if you look at specifically 8 verse 10, you see the centurion's faith is commended. He commends him for his faith, right? And here we have the same thing. The Canaanite woman in verse 28, he says, great is your faith. This is the only time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus describes faith as great. As great is your faith. And it's the Canaanite woman. It's the Canaanite woman. Now, I love what J.C. Rao has such a beautiful section of his, of his um, expository thoughts on this passage. It's an incredible read. If you just want to read it, I can print it off for you and let you see it. But he says this. He says, True faith may sometimes be found where it might have been least expected. It is grace, not place, which makes people believers. Let us not despair of anyone's soul merely because his lot is cast in an unfavorable position. This is a Canaanite woman, right? So the disciples, she would definitely be one that they would see as being in an unfavorable position, one that they would say, she's not going to have faith. Just send her away. Send her away. Now, we don't know. That, they don't say this here, but Jesus' response would make you think, you know, in verse 23, they say, send her away for she's crying out after us. And he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Right? So the way Jesus responds would make you think or, or see that, you know, they probably are saying, uh, just help her out and send her off. She's annoying us, right? So it's probably not that they're just saying, hey, get rid of her. They're saying, help her and send her away, probably because Jesus says, hey, hey, no, I'm sent to the lost sheep of Israel, right? But, but the, the disciples are not thinking, hey, this is the place where people are going to show great faith. But, but no, this is a Canaanite woman. So we have to be careful not to categorize who or will or who will not believe in our minds. That's easy for us to do, isn't it? It's easy for us to fall in that spot where we think, well, he's too bad. Like, 
He's too rebellious. He would never come to Christ. He would never walk into a church. No, she's, she's just too, too wealthy. She doesn't need the Lord. She would never give up all she has to follow Christ. It's easy to think those thoughts. We may, we may not admit that, right? We may not go, oh yeah, I would, never, you know, I would never think that person would come to Christ. We may not admit that, but it's easy to have those thoughts. The Canaanite woman is an example that we should not have those thoughts. It's not up to us to determine who's going to respond in faith. Our task is simply to be faithful, to share the gospel, and to tell people about Christ. That's what our task is. And we leave salvation up to the Lord. We leave his work up to him. But what is it that makes her faith so great? What is it that leads Jesus to say, great is your faith? There's three quick aspects of her faith that would lead Jesus to say, great is your faith. Here's the first one. is first that Christ is the object of her faith. He's the object of her faith. And she's from Tyre and Sidon, right? These are places that there would have been all kinds of false gods to worship, all kinds of mystery religions and pagan religions that, that she could bow to and worship. And if she did that, no one would have blamed her. No one would have gone, oh, I can't believe you're going into that pagan temple. No, they would say, hey, come on in. Maybe this guy can help you. If not, we'll go to this one. If this one doesn't help you, hey, try mine. No, try mine. Mine will do it. Right? That would just be what's standard and par for the course for her. But she's different. Her entire context was that of false worship, yet her appeal for mercy was to who? The son of David. The son of David. She knew who he was. She calls him by his name. Oh, Lord, son of David, you're the anointed Messiah. You're the one who is foretold. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. She cries out to him. We've said before that our faith is only as good as what it is in. It's only as good as what it's in. And she understood this. She came to Christ appealing for mercy. I, I, we're teaching. We're going through Wednesday night. And, and on Wednesday night, we're doing a class on J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. And this past Wednesday night, I, I brought this little bust of J.C. Ryle. And I sat it up and said, you know, J.C. Ryle's leaving my office. And he gets to come to class tonight. And I sat in there. And J.C. Ryle, I shared with the class, as someone who's been influential in my life. Holiness is one of my favorite books outside of the scriptures to read. I'd say it's definitely my top five books I've ever read. I absolutely love that book. And I, I respect Ryle for what he's done for the Lord, for the kingdom, what, how God has used him. But if I went and just started really venerating that little bust of J.C. Ryle and praying to it and, and bowing down to it and trusting it, you wouldn't look at me and go, wow, great is your faith in J.C. Ryle. Wow. No, you look at me and go, you're a fool. What are you doing? What are you doing? Why, why are you, why are you, that's a, that's a man-made bust of a man who's in the grave. Why would you do that? You're foolish, right? But Jesus doesn't look and say, you're foolish. He looks and says, great is your faith. Why? Because it's in him, the true son of God. The second thing about her faith that made it great is that it was persistent. It was persistent. Do you see in this passage, she makes three appeals to Jesus, three of them. First, she comes out and she says, Lord, have mercy on me. My daughter has a demon. Please have mercy on me. Right? And then Jesus does not respond to her. And then what happens? She says, Lord, help me. 
And then he, he answers, and he, he, it's the interchange about the, the children and the dogs. And after that, she says, yeah, but even the dogs will eat the crumbs. Please, Lord. Please, she's making an appeal. She makes a humble appeal. She's not going to give up. She's not going to give up. She's persistent. And when is it the most difficult for us to be persistent in prayer? When is it most difficult for us to be persistent in our faith? It's when we feel like Christ is silent. It's when we feel like we pray over and over and over and the answer just doesn't come. We don't know. We don't know here why Jesus was silent. It doesn't say. There, you can read commentaries and all kinds of theologians go, well, it's probably because of this, and it may be because of that. But you know what the bottom line, I don't care how smart those guys are, we don't know. It doesn't say. The Scriptures just say that he did not answer her a word. So she's appealing, and he's just quiet. Not a word. Not a word. What we do see here is that Jesus' silence did not deter her. Did not deter her. And he did not send her away. That's important. He didn't send her away. Again, again I love what Ralph said. He said he, he may sometimes keep us waiting as he did this woman, but he will never send us away empty. Never send us away empty. He may keep us waiting. There may be times where we come to the Lord and we pray and he, we wait and we wait and we wait and we wait. He'll never send us away empty. She was persistent in her faith. The third thing we see about her faith is it came from a humble heart. What is her original appeal? She doesn't walk up to the Lord and say, hey, listen, I'm a pretty outstanding Canaanite woman. I mean, i got things going on here. Good business, good family, keep my house in order, daughter's sick, really think you should heal her. She doesn't come to Christ with any sense of air about her, with any sense that I deserve this, now you should do that. She comes appealing for what? Mercy. Lord, have mercy on me. She doesn't appeal to fair. Hey, it's not fair, God. It's not fair. You should do this. I want fairness. I'm going to demand fairness from you. She doesn't even come and say, my, my daughter is innocent. I mean, look at her suffering. Why is she suffering? She's innocent. Heal her. No, she simply comes and says, Lord, have mercy. And look at how she responds. Look how she responds when Jesus says that about the, the children and the dogs. Does she say, oh, but, 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 but that's not fair, but, but I can't believe you said that. That's so rude. I can't believe no, you shouldn't say that. She doesn't respond in anger. She doesn't get offended. She doesn't offer a rebuttal. No, she, she goes, so essentially she says, yes, Lord, she agrees. She said, yeah, you're right. But then she appeals within that and says, yet even the dogs eat crumbles that fall from their master's table. I'll take just a crumble. Just give me just a, a crumb, just a crumb of your mercy. She's speaking from a humble heart. A humble heart. James Montgomery Boyce says, this is exactly how everyone must come to Jesus, asking for mercy, laying aside all self-righteousness, making no claim to entitlement, and making no demands. Just come in humble, persistent faith in Christ. We don't make demands. We don't say, this is who I am, now you do this. This is what I've done 
This is how faithful I've been. Now you do this. As though we have some power over God. We come in humility before Him and plea for mercy. So in verse 28, he says, Great is your faith. Her faith is commended, and Jesus' compassion and power is displayed. So we come to the end of this account with the lady, and we just ask, who do you trust in? Who is your hope in? Are you trusting in Christ? Is your faith in Christ? Or is it in something or someone else? Moving on to that last passage, I just want to point out a progression of ministry in this passage. You might... If you're taking notes, you might say Jesus' model of ministry we see here. We've seen similar models from him consistently in Matthew, but look at what he does. All the people come. He's walking beside the Sea of Galilee now. He goes up on the mountain. He sits down. Great crowds come to him. They bring the lame, the blind, crippled, mute, many others. They put him in his feet. What does he do? There's three things that happen here. First, he heals them, Right? What is the crowd's response? They wonder. They wonder. It says they wondered. Why did they wonder? Because they see the lame, the mute, the crippled, the blind. They see them healed. It wasn't as though this was some manufactured thing with like some trickery of, of somebody who says, hey, we're going to have a big healing service and everybody gathers and they come in and, and, and we're this big healing service and you have like a, a you can, if you ever want to have a great, understanding this look up johnny erickson tata or costi hen look up some of their stories about these things these healing services johnny erickson tata tells a story where she comes up she's in a wheelchair she's hopeful so hopeful to be healed she comes in they usher her into the wheelchair section and all this healing starts happening she says it's happening over on this side of the room and she's thinking hey lord Come over here where all the wheelchair people are. And it's going on over there, over there, over there, and then it's done, and boom, they go, and they, and they just push them right out the door. Why? Because as she came to find out, it was trickery. People were set up to come and, and get money. This was not trickery. This was not some kind of setup to say, hey, let's ship in some people who were claiming these things and would be healed. No, this is legitimate people that the people brought to them that were crippled, mute, and lame, and Jesus heals them, and they're looking and going, you were just crippled, now you're not. I know you. I live with you. I've seen you. You've been mute. Like, I know this, and now you're not. They're wonder. They're blown away. They're amazed, right? So Jesus heals. The crowd wonders, and then what happens? What does it say? Look at your text. What does it say? They glorified the God of Israel. Is, is this not what Jesus told us to do in the Sermon on the Mount? Did he not tell us this in Matthew 5, 16? Did he not say, this is what my people do, this is how my people will live? They will let their light shine before men that they would see their good deeds and what? Praise their Father who is in heaven. They would live out their faith. They would live out their lives in a way that magnifies me in such a way that brings glory and honor to the Lord. Not to them, but to the Lord. It's exactly what Jesus told us to do. And so this prompts some questions for us to consider. It prompts some questions. Are we doing the first thing at all? Are we doing the first thing, meeting the physical needs of people around us? Are we doing that at all? Are we seeking to minister and come alongside and help those around us? 
those who are in some kind of impoverished position, those who are in some kind of physical position, physical ailments, are we coming alongside of them? Are we praying for them? Are we helping them? Are we coming to minister to them and show them love? Are we doing anything? Are we living in such a way that, that puts us in a position to have spiritual conversations with people around us? Are we doing anything at all there? And if we are, when, when people wonder and they go, wow, I can't, I can't believe how kind you are. I can't believe how you helped me. I can't believe what you did. When they do that, do we do anything to point them to Christ or do we point them to ourselves? Do we rob God of glory? Do we say, oh, well, you know, I just, you know, I just, you know, that's the kind of guy I am. <laughs> you know, glad I could help you. See, we can allow sinful pride to go right in there. Do we, in those moments, attribute the work of God in people's lives to the work of man? That man will be glorified, or is God glorified? What is the end result of the way that you and I care for people and minister to people and love people? What is the end result? Is it God's glory or my glory? So I just want to ask you a few questions to close, questions to consider as we close our time today. Here's the first one is, how are you actively taking part in God's mission to advance the gospel? The mission of God began in the lost sheep of Israel, and it has extended to all nations. So what are you doing to actively take part in the charge to go and make disciples of all nations. I'm not asking you what I'm doing, and I'm not asking you what Pastor Mike's doing as the missions pastor. I'm asking you what you are doing to make disciples. What are you doing to take part in the mission of God? The second question is this, is what or who are you trusting in? Everybody in here is trusting in someone or something. Could be yourself, could be your bank account. Hopefully it's Christ. You can trust in a lot of things, but your faith and trust is only as good as the object that it's in. What are you trusting in? Is your trust evident through persistent humble prayer? Are you demonstrating persistent humble prayer? Or have you just given up? He hadn't answered. I've been praying for that for years. I've been praying for that person for years. I've been praying for healing here. I've been praying for... I'm just going to quit praying. Would you have persistent, humble prayer as the Canaanite woman did? And then finally, are you living in such a way as to let your light shine before men that they might see your good deeds and glorify your God in heaven? Is that how you're living? Are you seeking to take advantage of opportunities that God puts in front of you to serve others and glorify the name of the Lord? Just some simple questions that I would encourage you to take one of those. Take a hold of one of those questions. Think on it. Mull it over. And apply the word of the Lord to your life this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for 
this example, this testimony, this account of great faith as you come in from the life of a Canaanite woman. God, I pray that we would be a people who have deep and rich and great and confident and courageous faith in you. God, I pray that anyone in here, God, if their trust is in something else, if it's in someone else, God, I pray that you would show them the vanity of that, the uselessness of that, the hopelessness of that. That, God, hope is found in Christ alone. God, may we be about your work and your mission, taking the gospel to all nations. And God, I pray that we would do that in very real and observable and practical ways. It doesn't have to be on the other end of the world. God, it starts here. I pray that as we leave this place today, that we would go out and seek to serve others in a way that magnifies the name of Christ our Lord. So God, strengthen us to do that. Show us how to do that. Teach us how to do that faithfully. And God, when those opportunities arise, God, please, please don't let us rob you of your glory. But God, let us point to you and magnify you and engage people in gospel conversations. Oh God, we praise you and we love you. From beginning to end of our worship today, it's all because of your great love on the cross your great love in creating us, and your great love for your creation. That we go out and proclaim the gospel. So God, we end today singing of your great love. Thank you for loving us first, O oh God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.